Good evening and welcome. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Keneal Joyce. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Management here. Uh, my work is on creativity, design, and innovation. Um, and I am an absolute technophile nerd. So I've been tracking uh, Stephen Johnson for many years. Um, he's given me advice through his blog on how to organize my ideas, how to find connections between things that seem totally unrelated, um, and basically how to integrate knowledge across all sorts of domains. I don't purport to be an expert in these things, um, but Stephen certainly is. Uh, he, tonight he's going to be talking about his new book, uh, one of five. Seven. Seven. One of seven <laughs> books. Uh, this one is called Where Good Ideas Come From, The Natural History of Innovation. It's an absolutely fascinating read. Um, you definitely want your own copy so that you can mark it up and refer back to it. Um, it weaves together history, technology, science, evolution, psychology, uh, and the mind, um, and other things as well. So really encourage you to pick it up. Stephen lives in Brooklyn currently with his wife and three sons. Uh, he has started, he has founded three important websites, Feed, Plastic.com, and Outside In, which was his most recent venture. Uh, he's here tonight um, at the end of a long book tour. Um, so we're excited to hear some, what I hear will be some new material for Stephen. Um, he's shaking it up a bit for us. And He'll be talking tonight for about 30 minutes. After that, we will have question and answer from you. So uh, please do collect your questions as they go, and we'll have a few mics being passed around. After the talk, Stephen will be signing copies of his book, and I'm sure if you brought any of his others, Mind Wide Open, Interface Culture, uh, The Invention of Air, Everything Bad is Good for You, any of those, he will probably be happy to sign as well. So without further ado, here's Stephen. <laughs> okay. So yeah, this is uh, the the last official event of the Good Ideas World Tour. World Tour only because I came to London at the end of the U.S. tour. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. So I can say World Tour. Um, I'm slightly losing my voice, which is what happens on book tour. I think I've done uh, 20 eight events in the last 26 days or something like that. Um, and so as Keneal said, I, I want to uh, <coughs> mix it up a little bit and I'm not going to talk about the book at all. I'm just going to show you slides of my children, if that's all right for the next time. <laughs> um, they're very cute. It's, it'll be wonderful. We're going to have a great time. Now, but I actually did want to do something kind of different just to celebrate this, this end of, of this part of the promoting of the book. Um, which is, in a sense, to kind of talk around the book. Um, talk a little bit about um, what, what, what brought me to this topic, how I came to write it, um, talk briefly about it, and then talk a little bit of, of, of things that have happened since it's come out now. It's been out for about a month, and it's one of the wonderful things that a book can do is really start conversations. Um, the book continues <laughs> to be the best mechanism for that. Um, and one of the things I'm, I'm excited about is that this book seems to be doing that um, very nicely. So. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> give you a sense of what the book is about, but, uh, but I'm actually going to do a bunch of kind of new things here. Um, the, the roots of this book actually date back to my uh, 2005 book, uh, The Ghost Map, um, which is a historical story, true story, set here in, in London, not very far away from here. And The Ghost Map 
is the story of the, the famous cholera outbreak in, in London in the 1850s. Um, and I had, it was one of those situations where I had come to this story from multiple angles. I kept kind of approaching it from these various different, uh, different kind of interpretive systems or, or different fields. I would kind of stumble across it in, in an information design context or in a kind of history of science context or a history of public health context. And it's a very famous story. <clears throat> but I, because I kept running into it from these different directions, I started to think that maybe there was a good book here. And the story, as I heard it, went something like this. There was a terrible outbreak in 1854 of cholera, this disease that was the, the great scourge of, of metropolitan centers around the world, really. And the authorities at the time were baffled as to the nature of this disease, what was causing it, and they all believed that, and effectively, the, the cholera was in the air. This was the miasma theory uh, of cholera. And a terrible outbreak comes to Soho, in London in, in, in the late summer of 1854. 10% of the population of the neighborhood dies within about 10 days. But in the middle of this terrible <coughs> fear and, and carnage, a kind of a lone genius, brilliant physician named John Snow, who was a resident of the neighborhood, um, kind of boldly goes into the belly of the beast of this outbreak, starts knocking on doors to investigate who had died and who hadn't and who, you know, where they lived and all this stuff. And he builds a map and the map basically pinpoints all the deaths in the neighborhood. And when you look at all those deaths organized spatially, they point like a kind of a flashing arrow to this popular pump, this watering hole at 40 Broad Street in the middle of the neighborhood. And when he looks at this map, Snow thinks to himself, aha, the water is the problem. It's not an airborne disease. It's, it's a waterborne disease. And, and if you could clean the water supply, you could rid cities of this terrible, terrible plague. And so he goes to the authorities. They remove the handle of the pump. He convinces the, the kind of medical experts of the time of the efficacy of his theory. And the London sewers are built. The water supply is clean. Cities all around the world um, follow. And the world has changed greatly for the better from this new understanding of the waterborne nature of of cholera. So I thought, this is a fantastic story. It's like a Victorian episode of CSI. People are going to love it. Um, it's got a page turner kind of quality to it. So I decided to write a book on it. And I sat down and began to research it. And what I found when I researched the story is that just about every important fact that I just told you is untrue. <laughs> that in fact, starting with the, the fact that Snow had the idea for the waterborne theory for six years before he made the map that the map was not a sudden eureka moment when he suddenly looked down and, and understood everything. He'd in fact been working on this hunch that in fact cholera was in the water for an extremely long time. He'd written a number of papers, a number of letters to the Lancet and, and actually made some other maps and had failed to convince anyone of his, of his idea. The map of the Broad Street outbreak turned out to be ultimately kind of a marketing vehicle for his idea. It wasn't actually the, the, the kind of source of the inspiration in the first place. And Snow <coughs> himself turned out to be a very interesting figure whose the diversity of his interests turned out to be central to his ability to kind of solve this, this riddle. He was approaching the problem of cholera from a number of different angles. Cholera, in fact, was a hobby of his. Um, most of us don't have cholera as a hobby. Uh, and if you do, and you tell people about it at a cocktail party, it tends to alarm them. But for Snow, this was, this was something he was doing on the side. He was a physician and an anesthesiologist. And it was in part because of his kind of different background and because he had these different interests that he was able to kind of see around the, the kind of blind spots of the, uh, of, of the kind of 
dominant regime in science at the time. But the most important thing that I found in this research is that Snow had a collaborator that almost no one talked about in, in telling this story. Um, and his collaborator was a guy named the Reverend Henry Whitehead, who was kind of a local vicar, he was 25 years old, he was a kind of local vicar that would hang around in the pub with everyone in the neighborhood um, till late in the night. He knew everyone. He was not at all a man of science. Um, he had no scientific training whatsoever. But he was a classic kind of social connector. He had great social intelligence, and he knew everyone. And when he ended up kind of partnering with Snow, it was Whitehead who was able to actually track down a lot of the cases and track down and kind of build the data set that, that, that ended up fueling the, the images on the map. And it was Whitehead who tracked down the patient zero, who had kind of been the original index case that had started the outbreak in the first place, which ended up being crucial in convincing the authorities that, those, that Snow's theory was right. And so here we had this kind of image of this classic eureka moment lone genius comes up with an idea that changes the world in an instant. And in fact, the story was much more nuanced. Um, the idea was much slower in its incubation. And the process of kind of turning that idea into something that really changed the world was actually much more collaborative, much more of a network affair. And I think much more interesting because of it, right? And so I started to think as I was writing the book that there was this kind of latent theory about innovation that was kind of lurking in the background. Um, about the innovation and the spaces that lead to breakthrough ideas. And so <clears throat> I decided that I would kind of take that latent theory and put it in the, in the foreground and write a book about great ideas and the environments to make them possible. And so I went to my publisher and, and they said, that sounds like a wonderful idea. And so they bought the proposal, um, as did my wonderful publishers here in, in the UK, Alan Lane, some of whom are here. Thank you very much. And then, uh, and then quickly after that, I started to think, you know, I, I think it would be interesting also to look at biological environments um, that are unusually innovative. So not just human environments, not just social environments, but also natural ecosystems that have a long track record of biodiversity, of creating innovative new forms of life and supporting them. Things like coral reefs and, and tropical rainforests, because I suspected there would be these kind of interesting patterns that you would, you would see both in nature and in, and in culture that would shed light kind of uh, on, on each other. And then I realized that I had, you know, in, in setting the potential scope for this book, um, in terms of the, the number of things that I could actually include as, as stories and as data points in this study, was effectively infinite, right? This was a book that could include any good idea that any human being had ever had in the course of human history, plus any interesting life form that had ever evolved in the course of <laughs> life on Earth, which is kind of a daunting thing when you're sitting down with your cup of coffee and, you know, logging onto Google first thing in the morning. You're like, where do I start, you know? And so for a while I was a little bit taunted and, and maybe a little bit feeling like I'd made a terrible mistake. And uh, I, I procrastinated by starting a company outside in in the middle of that, uh, which gave, bought me a year. And then, <clears throat> and then finally I started, the, the, the way I got into the project was I started to research the history of ecosystem science. Because I thought ultimately I'm talking about idea ecosystems and, and thinking about the way that ideas flow soci through society is somewhat like the way that information, um, uh, that energy flows through an ecosystem. And so I thought maybe there's an interesting story from the history of ecosystem science that I could kind of start with. Um, and so I began to research that. And I stumbled across the story about Joseph Priestley, the uh, brilliant kind of polymath, chemist, radical, political, religious thinker uh, from the late 18th century. And Priestley is most famous for isolating oxygen for the first time, um, though in fact he it turns out to be not the first person to do it. 
And when he did isolate oxygen, he gave it the name deflostigated air, which turned out to be not a very good brand for oxygen. Um, it didn't really take off, and it was Lavoisier's uh, uh, name of oxygen that, that became the term. But what I found was that actually Priestley had discovered something else, which was, in fact, maybe even more impressive, and which he was, in fact, the first person to do, which was that Priestley um, was the first person to realize that plants were creating oxygen. And that the whole reason we have an atmosphere to breathe is because it's manufactured by the plants every second of every day as kind of a waste product of, uh, of photosynthesis. And so I thought, okay, that's, you know, this is one of the founding ideas of kind of our understanding of kind of global environments and the, the whole idea of an atmosphere that we breathe being bound up in, in a connection with these, with these plants. So I thought that'll be a great story. And so I began to research that, and it turned out that Priestley had a collaborator as well on that experiment that no one ever talked about. And that collaborator's name was Benjamin Franklin. And in fact, it was Franklin who suggested to Priestley the kind of global implications of what he had discovered. And so I got more and more interested in this, and it turned out that Priestley had all these connections to other American founding fathers. And so eventually I realized that I had to write a book about Priestley as well. And that became my book, Invention of Air, which necessitated me calling up my publishers and having the somewhat awkward conversation where you say, I know you've paid for this big book about innovation. I think a book about 18th century chemistry would be better right first. And then we'll do the innovation book, which, you know, you're like, hello? Are you still there? Um, but it ended up working out well because those two books really I now see as kind of preambles. And in a sense, this is a bit of an informal trilogy where there are two kind of long format case studies about innovation and world changing ideas and the environments that made them possible, and then this book at the center. <laughs> What I found in, in going through all these different stories and the many other stories that, that I tell in the book, what I found is that there are these overarching patterns that, that, that show up. Um, and they, they do recur in, in, in many of these cases again and again and again. Um, and so the book is actually organized around these kind of seven chapters, each of which kind of ruminates on and, and tells stories about one, one of the patterns. Um, in those patterns, there are a number of kind of common themes. Um, one of which is this idea that the importance of hunches, right, um, and slow hunches, as in the case of Snow or in the case of Priestley. Um, ideas do not come to us in terms of, you know, in these sudden moments of clarity and inspiration and, and eureka moments. They almost never form that way. They almost always take long periods of time where the idea kind of lingers in the back of your mind and, and has to kind of be incubated, sometimes for decades. Um, it doesn't make sense when you first kind of stumble across it. It's just this fragment of something. But then five years later or ten years later or sometimes just five months later, it turns into something more powerful. Often it turns into something more powerful because you collide with someone else and someone else's hunch. There's some other kind of missing piece of the puzzle, some new perspective that opens up for you because you have a conversation with a Benjamin Franklin or, or Henry Whitehead. And that, there are, that, in a sense, ideas are not these single things. They're much more like networks. They're much more like um, kind of implicit and elaborate collaborations that happen between people in environments where they're exposed to difference and to diversity. One of the big themes of the book is, is this idea that diversity is not just a political principle. There's a wonderful study a number of years ago by a Stanford Business School professor named Martin Reif who looked at the social networks of unusually innovative people um, in the corporate world. And uh, he was looking at their kind of, not their Facebook and Twitter accounts, but their actual social people they actually knew, right? And 
And he basically had, he had a control. He had you know, unusually innovative people in the corporate world and entrepreneurs, and then people who, to put it nicely, were less innovative in their lives, you know, which is, if you get asked to be part of the experiment, it's the side you don't want to be invited to. You, know, you seem very dull. Is it all right if I interview you for a while? Um, and, and what Roy found was that there was this kind of distinct kind of network pattern in the people that they, that they knew and that they hung out with, which was that innovative people were friends with and had weak tie acquaintances with um, an unusually diverse range of professions. So you yourself were a marketing person at an ad agency, but you were friends with an architect, and you were friends with a plumber, and you were friends with a government contract lawyer and a popular science writer. Whereas the less innovative group were just friends with other people at other ad agencies. And it, you can see this, this makes a lot of sense when you look at it in the, in the kind of broader context of the book because so many of the ideas that, that I kind of profile are cases where somebody has taken some kind of interesting technology or some interesting concept or even just kind of a metaphor from one field and kind of ported it over and brought it over and, and kind of made new use of it in, in, in a surprising new way. And so in a sense when you, when you look at the problem of innovation from the perspective of this kind of borrowing and remixing of, of other people's ideas, one of the things that becomes clear is that you know, d diversity is not just a kind of a social good. It's not just uh, something we want in our society because it makes us more tolerant and get along better, although that is certainly true. But on some level, being around kind of difference and different experiences and different kind of fields of expertise actually makes us smarter. It makes us more original in our thinking, more capable of approaching problems from, from new angles. And so uh, one of the key principles here is that you want to put yourself in environments where your ideas are free to connect with other ideas um, and where you're not kind of spending all of your energy trying to protect them and keep them um, kind of guarded in, and locked away so that no one steals them. And in fact, there's this long history um, of open intellectual environments where people are sharing their ideas, improving them, uh, crossing disciplinary boundaries, um, Many of which I've written about um, in, in Invention of Air. I mean, the kind of the, the whole amateur scientist scene that Priestley was a part of, and that Franklin was a part of, and indeed the entire Enlightenment, for the most part, was driven by people who were just exploring this new realm of kind of empirical science for the love of it, and were very keen on sharing their ideas as as widely as possible. Now, after that period, an amazing, crucial institution developed which we're, we're in, the, in the middle of right now, which is the university system, the kind of modern research university, which, while it does have many commercial elements, is for the most part an open information commons where ideas are, are freely shared and people are able to build on other people's ideas and borrow them and remix them as long as they give kind of proper credit. People do not have direct ownership of their ideas the way that they might in a, in a, kind of in a, in a private sector environment, in a commercial environment. So we have these platforms, and of course the most powerful one, the most you know, open, connective, innovative platform of our time is the internet and the World Wide Web. Um, the web has innovated faster than, than any communications platform in history, precisely because it is set up as a platform that nobody owns, where you don't have to ask for permission to build something new on it. The, the web itself was built on top of the open platform of the internet, if Tim Berners-Lee had, asked, had to ask for permission to build his, his new layer there, if he'd had to do a complex business development deal to get permission to, 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 to come up with the, the structure of the web, or if he hadn't been able to borrow some existing standards that he used in creating the, the original HTML standard, he probably would have never done it. 
But it was precisely because the net was an open environment that enabled somebody else to come along and build a, another kind of open environment on top of it that we've had this tremendous kind of race towards you know, an, an amazing diversification uh, uh, of the medium in, in just 15 short years. Now, I tell a lot of stories in the book, but one of the things I was worried about was the, the, the risk of arguing by anecdote. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful kind of rhetorical device to use where you tell a bunch of different stories. Um, it pulls people in. It helps make theoretical ideas more tangible. But, you know, even if you marshal, you know, 30 or 40 stories over the course of a, of a 250-page book, somebody is going to say, yeah, well, I've got 30, 40 stories that make the other argument. Um, and you're just, you've, you've cherry-picked your examples here. So in the last chapter, one of the things that I tried to do is, is to kind of zoom out even further and look at the, the broad patterns in, of innovation over kind of the last 400 or 500 years. And, and I kind of charted about 300 different innovations in science and technology and, and commerce and tried to kind of broadly categorize them as coming from either kind of individual entrepreneurs working alone for the, for the kind of financial reward, um, corporations competing and collaborating with other corporations for, again, for financial reward, solo amateur scientists exploring things basically on their own for the love of it. And then this fourth quadrant, which, I, which is basically kind of you can think of as the internet of the open source quadrant or the university quadrant, where people are sharing ideas collaboratively, building ideas in networks. And I, an important breakthroughs come from multiple groups of people working and refining and sharing and borrowing and, and building on top of other people's platforms. What happens is, even though we have this, this concept in, in, in much of our culture, particularly in the United States, and I think partially here as well, that the market is the driver of innovation in society, it turns out that that fourth quadrant has been responsible for as many, if not more, world-changing innovations, over, over, particularly over the last 200 years, exactly during the period of the dramatic rise of industrial and consumer capitalism that open source space of the fourth quadrant has nonetheless actually kind of out-innovated the private sector during that time. In many cases, it's not a zero-sum game in the kind of the conflict between the, the, the open systems and, and the commercial systems. The internet is a great example. The internet is one of the great wealth creators of our time. And, you know, countless numbers of, of very successful private ventures have been founded on this open platform that nobody owns. That is often the pattern that you see with these things. They, they, they create an open space, an open platform, where commercial ventures can then set up shop and, and, and make a lot of money. So that fourth quadrant, I think, is an important corrective that we have to keep in our heads. It's not something that just happened with the web and with Wikipedia. It is, in fact, an old and kind of rich tradition that goes back you know, many centuries. And it is an increasingly kind of vital part of where good ideas come from today. So, so what are some of the implications of this? Um, what are some of the implications for intellectual property law? Um, let me talk about, about two of them. It's not that I think that there is no room for intellectual property, um, that we should ab abolish copyrights and, and, and patents, um, and everything should be open. I, I wouldn't go that far. What I, what I believe is that, in a sense, the balance has, has shifted a, a little bit too far towards protecting and concealing as opposed to kind of opening things up. Um, and I'll give you an example that's, that's quite close to home. I s sell books for a living, right? And my books are, you know, they, they have copyrights on them. Um, and there is some digital rights management that is built into the electronic versions of my books that keep you from just downloading them and creating some kind of book Napster, I suppose, is what the publishers are afraid is going to happen. Um, and and I, 
I'm fine with that. A reasonable level of kind of wrapper around things is, is I think, not inappropriate. Um, but I think there also are, are limits. Um, one of the things that is, that is true uh, of my books and just about any other kind of commercial new book out now uh, on the Kindle or, or on the iPad and other competing formats is if you read them in an electronic form, and you really see this very strongly on the iPad, you cannot select the text and copy it. Right? You can select the text, and then there's sometimes a mechanism where you can then say highlight it. And then sometimes, very small number of circumstances, you can then get those highlights exported to a file or to a separate website where you, then you can go grab that text and copy it and paste it into your blog. But if you're sitting there reading a Kindle edition on an iPad and you select some text and then you go to copy that text, in a sense, it's like the text is covered with glass, right? You can't actually get to it, right? And presumably the idea is that the publishers are afraid that people will sit there and select paragraphs and stitch together an electronic version of my book, which then will create a book Napster, right? Um, and maybe that is, that is true, but it seems to me that this is a, a, a really a tr kind of a tragic waste of possibility here because the whole point of digital text is that you can do things with it. Right? that you can borrow ideas and move them around and send them to friends and put them up on your blog and share and, and build off of other people's ideas. And at this point in time, I think you know, we, we've been around digital text enough that I think that the ability to see text on a screen and select it and copy it, copy it is kind of an inalienable right of the digital age. Right? Um, it's, in some sense, it's not a feature when you, when you keep people from being able to copy text and paste it into another application. It means that your software is broken. On, on some basic level. Because one of the patterns that, that I talk about extensively in the book is this idea of the, the commonplace book, which is a great tradition of the Enlightenment, where, where scholars and thinkers would sit there and transcribe these passages from books that they found influential and stitch together these quotation books with their own notes included. And by reading through all these different notes, they would sit there and, and revisiting all these ideas that they borrowed and remixed from all these different minds their own intellectual sensibility would be born out of this kind of remixing of other voices on this, on this kind of shared page that they would create. We have an incredible opportunity to build networked, social, digital age, commonplace books now. We've got digital books, we've got the software, we've got an amazing global network of people who would you know, be thrilled to be able to share ideas like that. And yet we're building these kind of artificial barricades to keep those ideas from, from going in motion. On the, on the patent side, now obviously the, those of you who know anything about the history of intellectual property law, patents were originally invented to, in part to allow disclosure, right? to get the ideas out in motion. You were given a kind of restricted period um, where you kind of had ownership of your idea, but you had to disclose your invention to make sure that other people could see it. And so even there, there was this idea of getting ideas into circulation and getting them to flow. But I think what's happened is, again, the pendulum has switched too far, and we spend too much time kind of battling cease and desist orders from patent attorneys in, in startups and in other places. But there's a, a great example of something that I think gets it right very recently, um, and that is a, a collaboration between Nike and uh, Creative Commons, which has done amazing work with kind of intellectual property law. And what, what Nike realized is that they have this uh, corporate mandate to make more environmentally sustainable um, goods. Um, that's part of their, their mission as, as a company. Um, they, want to, they want to be more green in, in what they produce. And they realized they're sitting on all this intellectual property in their labs, in their R&D labs, um, that's just hanging around there that might actually be useful to other companies working in non-competitive fields. 
Um, so they come up with some great new material that's more environmentally sustainable for making kind of the rubber in a sneaker. And it might actually turn out to be useful to a tire manufacturer who could, could actually improve on it um, and teach Nike a thing or two about how to make this material even, even more environmentally sustainable or more efficient. <laughs> Nike's not in the business of making tires. And so there's this cost, basically, that they're implicitly putting on all of us on the society at large by keeping that information, by keeping that idea locked up and kind of secretive in a, in a vault somewhere. And so what they did is, with a couple of companies and with Creative Commons, they created this thing called the Green Exchange. And the Green Exchange is this open kind of marketplace for what had been kind of secret R&D, all of it thematically connected to, to environmental sustainability where companies can kind of upload this information. And they've done two things. They created a kind of a one-click license for these things where you can basically, you don't have to get a bunch of lawyers together to kind of license the technology. You can just check off and say, yes, I'm going to use it. So it's a lot easier just to kind of grab things and experiment with them. But here's the crucial thing. In that license, there's basically a kind of a non-competitive clause. It says, you are free to go and use these things in whatever you're doing as long as it's not competitive with our core business. And so it's a system designed exactly to encourage that kind of borrowing across disciplines and across fields. It recognizes that innovation comes from something that was designed for sneakers that turns out to be amazingly good for, for auto, uh, auto tires. It's that porting over from one discipline to another that is such a kind of spark of innovation. And there you have intellectual property kind of wrappers that are designed to, to encourage that, that aren't designed to kind of keep that from happening, but actually are designed to facilitate that kind of creative borrowing. So I think that it's not that we want to do away with patents altogether, but we want to find more models like that and recognize that there is a lot of value to be had and for, for Nike and for everyone else to be had in creating these, these new kinds of connection. Now, the, here's the funny thing. After writing this, this argument, defending the, the, the fourth quadrant, um, talking about open systems and open platforms and, and everything like that, I go, I go out on book tour, and, and the second day of the book tour, uh, I'm in Seattle at, at a wonderful event they have called Words and Wine, where everybody sits around and drink wine, drinks wine all night, including the author, which is great. I'm a little bummed that you guys didn't provide that tonight. Um, and in this format, there's an interviewer. And one of the things that happens on book tour is that you very quickly learn that all the questions that are asked of you are oftentimes, particularly from the interviewers, are very predictable because they're just reading from the list that the publicist has given them. They haven't even read the book, you know. Um, but this night was different. We sat down. And my interviewer says to me, oh, Stephen, I've read the book, and I, uh, I want to start things off by asking you a question I've been dying to ask you. Are you a communist? <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, really? Was that the question? Um, and I, so I took a long, very deep drink of my glass of wine. Um, and he was joking, of course. But it was a very interesting question, because the, the problem we have is that when you champion things like fourth quadrant environments, um, when you champion kind of open connection, the free flow of ideas, when you talk about the innovation that happens outside of the marketplace, there isn't a very easy political slot to put us. Um, it, is, it is certainly not kind of traditional free market capitalism, right? We're talking about systems that exist outside the traditional incentives of, of the market and kind of financial reward. Um, but it is certainly not communism, right? It's the furthest thing from kind of command and control planned economies, um, top-down uh, kind of Stalinist systems, right? Um, it's very much about decentralized networks where nobody's in charge, where there are kind of emergent connections forming. Um, it's, it's not about top-heavy states at all. 
And so the problem is right now, the, the growing number, and I know there are a number of people in the room who are, who are in this world, they're, they're, the growing number of us who are really interested in what has happened in these spaces, all the possibility that's there being exploited but also still open for further exploitation in the, in the fourth quadrant. We don't really have a very easy place on the traditional kind of left-right spectrum here. We're for de decentralized systems, but not necessarily just for market forces. We're for the open flow of information for systems that everybody owns, but we're not for top-heavy states. And I think you know that one of the best examples of this is actually um, in, a, in a wonderful startup that that uh, started in New York just a, a year or two ago, which some of you may have heard. How many people have heard of Kickstarter? Just, I, don't, I, think it's, I think it's available here. Um, uh, it's a very interesting site. I encourage you to check it out. And it kind of embodies a lot of these, these principles. Kickstarter is a site that people use. They sometimes call it a kind of micro-patronage site. Um, and Kickstarter basically is a way for people working on creative projects. Um, they're finishing an album. They're working on a painting. Or even they're doing some kind of social service um, that requires some kind of funding. And you can go to Kickstarter, list your project, and say, I need $2,000 to finish this album. Um, if you contribute to it, um, I, will, I will take a kind of pledge for your money. If I get to $2,000 of pledges, I will then take your money from your credit card or wherever. Um, and in return, you'll get something that the artist kind of defines. The artist doesn't have to promise anything, uh, but oftentimes they say, you'll get invited to my CD launch party, or you will get a special signed uh, print uh, of, of this art that I'm working on, or I will send you a very nice letter, or I'll bake you a cake, whatever it is. It can be anything, um, and sometimes it's nothing. And from this kind of free solicitation of support that has no kind of direct, normal kind of market incentives in it, right? The people contributing money are not getting, they're not, inve they're investing in these artists, but they're not investing to get a financial return. They're investing real capital for some kind of interesting social capital, for some feeling that they're supporting projects that are worthy, that they're interested in. Um, that dynamic has, is just in, a, in, a, in about a year and a half of being in business, just as a little startup, they've already done $20 million uh, worth of support for all these, all these projects and they're just getting started. Now, Kickstarter itself takes a small cut from each transaction. It is a for-profit business that is backed by very smart angel and venture investors and will probably make a very tidy return for its founders and for its investors. So what I'm trying to say to you is that the Kickstarter is an example of precisely this kind of new openness, um, this sense of which there are kind of new models of how we collaborate, how we share our ideas, how we share resources, how we share capital, that in some cases involves new kinds of exchange. Some cases they're really old kinds of exchange that are kind of dressed up in, in, in new digital clothes. But they also are not necessarily opposed to the market. Kickstart is a for-profit company, but it's enabling a kind of collaboration between people who want to support the arts and artists themselves that was very difficult to do before. But it's doing it entirely outside of the usual realm of kind of top-heavy government grants supporting artists. It's a decentralized network of support that is itself creating a kind of commercial model for the company that's facilitating it. And so what I would want to say to you now, particularly those of you who are, who are thinking about you know, the kind of economics of all of this in, in this context, is that we have a great opportunity right now for innovation in, in these kinds of, of models. Uh, the, the general category of financial innovation has been uh, gotten a bad name in recent years uh, for, for, for good reason. But I think when you look at things like Kickstarter and you look at platforms like that where you're seeing these kind of new models and these new experiments, it's amazing 
how, how many of them are kind of sprouting up, and how quickly the audiences and people and consumers seem willing to adopt them. To say, hey, this is an entirely new model. I've never quite seen anything quite like that, but sure, I'll try it. So there's a willingness not only in terms of the startups generating new models, new ways of sharing ideas, new ways of supporting each other, but a willingness of, of all of us, of the consumers of these products, to get involved and to participate and, and to experiment them with, with those ideas. And so I think that the, the key thing that I, that I would leave you with before we open it up to questions is that there is this kind of implicit innovation tax that we pay every time we invest all of our energies in kind of squirreling away our ideas and making sure nobody gets to them and, and, and spending all of our time protecting ideas. And that all of us need to spend more time, we have a great opportunity in front of us right now to figure out all the new kinds of value that we can get by trying to find new ways to connect our ideas instead. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Stephen. So can you guys hear me if I stand up, if I sit up straight? Okay. Uh, do we have multiple mics floating around out there? Can I take some? Okay. Um, so I guess the way we'll do this is, we have, we have two? One? Two. Uh, so maybe I could just get a show of hands of who's got a question right now and, and decide on my strategy. Okay, one, two. All right. So why don't we start with you then, sir? <laughs> uh, hi. The first thing is, a, is an observation, which is your discussion of some kind of uh, uh, where the, on the political spectrum you put this devolved uh, society. Yeah. I think in the UK we have the big society, which is a uh, ostensibly right-wing idea of uh, non-centralised uh, devolving to the community to take responsibility for things. And I think intellectually, uh, what you've described sounds like the big society for me. Um, not that I or I suspect anybody in or outside government really understands what the big society is. Um, but my question is, uh, you described your four quadrants. Um, and as someone who's quite a believer in the kind of discovery power of incentives, uh, when you put things in the four quadrants, there seems to me a distinction between having the idea and realizing the value in it. And I think you can have uh, definitely non-private sector firms having ideas. But the fact that you looked back 500 years and identified what ideas were good, I think maybe the private sector is quite good at identifying what ideas are good and what ideas are bad, if not having the good ideas. And I wonder how that fits into your theory. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a book, as the title says, about where good ideas come from. It is not um, focused on the... Uh, clearly not on the kind of commercial application of good ideas um, and the, the process of taking something that is promising but needs to be refined and packaged and turned into something that is actually kind of directly useful. And that is often the way that, that things work, um, that the kind of the, the open environments create these interesting kind of sparks um, that allow for kind of new perspectives. And then the commercial sector comes in and says, okay, 
there's the building blocks here. Um, I'm going to I'm going to refine this, and and then that's just a history again and again that you find you find uh, the, the oral contraceptive comes out of academic re research, but then big pharma comes in and says, aha, yes, okay, we will make billions of dollars with this, and we need to refine it a little bit, and we need to figure out how to market it, we need to figure out what the kind of regulatory issues are, and so that's that's part of the point. I mean, Larry Lessig has this kind of concept of the hybrid economy. Um, that, that the, the most useful kind of spaces are, are environments where you have kind of commons that are closely connected to commercial environments um, and where the two really collaborate um, in, a, in a useful way. And that's, that's absolutely what, what I believe is, is the case. It's just that I, I, I do feel like that there is this bit of a sense of um, there's been a lot of discussion of open platforms and, and connectivity and, and open source and Wikipedia in recent years, but I think there's often a sense that that is this new thing that, that doesn't have this long history and that it's sort of the kind of thing that only happens on the web. The web is this weird magic place where people will do things for the love of it. Um, and that's not true. There is this very rich, long history that, that maybe is, is in fact older than, than kind of contemporary markets. Um, that we need to be reminded of. And so that book is an attempt to kind of, this book is an attempt to kind of nudge people to remind them that, that that's, that, that's there. Okay. Other? Somebody over there. No. One here. And, and then one over there. Hello. Um, I would like to ask um, about whether you see a distinction between how ideas come about in natural versus social sciences. And um, how, if there's a distinction, how do you qualify what is a good idea and in which stage you feel that happens? What was the second part of the question? Um, well, if there is a distinction in, in those two disciplines, then how do you qualify what is a good idea and what is not? Uh, I don't know. I haven't actually really um, thought about it in that way. That's, that's very interesting. I mean, I, there is the problem that, that you know, the social sciences have. Um, you know, particularly when we're dealing with kind of macro tendencies in the social sciences, is it's very, it's hard to prove things, right? It's, it's hard to run the kind of experiments. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the, the problems that I have, in a sense, writing as kind of a cultural critic about this question of how does society encourage ideas and, and how have ideas worked in the past, it, that um, I built up that kind of fourth quadrant analysis in the end because the proof problem is tricky, right? You can't just go back and rewind the tape and do 12 different versions of it with different variables. Um, and so you, you have to, in a sense, you really have kind of three different mechanisms at your disposal. You can do kind of long format analyses of a single case study and try and convince your audience that it's somehow representative of a larger truth. And, and in a way, that's what I've been trying to do with Ghost Map and Invention of Air, that that's the way in which they kind of complete the project. Um, then there's the argument by anecdote, but then there's somehow you look at a kind of statistical survey um, and try and figure out what the kind of the broad patterns are. But it's still very tricky and, and you know, it's inherently subjective. It's hard to say with a lot of these things which quadrant they should really be in. It's not, it's not as kind of precise as some other kinds of science. So I, I think that there, there is in a sense a kind of, there's a bit more of an intuitive and a narrative form to the way that I, ideas form in, in the social sciences. Um, and the problem is that you know you, you don't want to allow that to kind of discredit those insights, right? Um, there may be cases where we will never be able to empirically prove certain insights about the world, but we're going to get as close as we can. And th that kind of understanding is so important because we need to have 
that understanding of ourselves and how we interact. And so it's, it's worth it to make the effort, um, even if we'll never get to the kind of the, the clarity of a, a, you know, of a real kind of proof. To some extent, that's similar in the natural sciences in the sense that, particularly in evolutionary environments, you can't rewind the tape and try it again and, and see what would have evolved. And so in, in guessing about the course of evolution, we have to kind of make similar inferences. But it's a, it's a really interesting question. Hello. Isn't there a danger that with, um, if everything turns into a sort of mashup of ideas because people are just um, stealing ideas from each other or borrowing ideas, if you like, from each other, is there a danger that we just become rather parasitic and don't become as creative as we could be? Yeah, I think that, that can be the case. I mean, that's where the, the kind of diversity uh, question is important and the serendipity question becomes important. Um, and, and this is a big, this is the big active debate about the web right now, um, where the, there are some folks who think that the web is actually kind of narrowing our field of view because we can filter out everything we disagree with. Um, and so because we have so much control over the kind of the flows of information in our lives, we, it creates this kind of echo chamber effect where we, we actually experience fewer and fewer kind of surprising, unlikely things. Um, and, and that ends up making us less original in our thinking and, and you know, less likely to stumble across some great new idea. I, I tend to feel that the web in general has had the opposite effect. And then in a sense, the, the link architecture of the web ha, has made it, compared to things that have come before, much more likely to drive you out into kind of new discoveries. I mean, I, I think most of you have had the experience where you go onto Wikipedia for some reason, and then three hours later you're like, why am I reading about monarch butterflies? I had no idea <laughs> that I, what, what happened? Where did my, you know, in a way, I mean, I feel like that the web is too serendipitous, sometimes where you're constantly just stumbling across crazy stuff that you, you weren't expecting to see. Um, so I, I tend to believe that the, in a sense, the links are more powerful than the filters. I suppose you could get to a point where you, you have so much just kind of random intake that your ideas lose focus. Um, and it's not that you get narrowed into an echo chamber kind of hole, but you're just this kind of primordial soup of ideas with no kind of clarity. Um, and so there is a, a necessary kind of selection process uh, to this, where you want to be able to say, okay, this thing I found and this thing I found, I need to put them together. This is, this is interesting. Um, and so that, and, and that's one place I think where social cues can be an interesting guide. Um, I get, I would say, more than half of my daily reading intake now comes to me from um, links that are being passed by people I follow on Twitter. And I've deliberately tried to cultivate a, an interesting, diverse group of people to follow. And my decision of what I'm going to read each morning over a kind of cup of coffee before I start work, while I'm procrastinating before I start work, is more and more selected by that eclectic group of people and, and less by the editorial board of the New York Times. Um, in terms of what they put on the front page of the paper. And, and I find that, that that is a great use of the technology because I'm constantly getting passed along some interesting story that I never would have thought about. Or I'm noticing that six of the people I follow all pointed to the same story. And the signaling implicit in that of like, wow, this is interesting. I've got to follow that. This is, there's something hot here. And it's not just a random kind of information overload kind of experience. I find that I get a lot out of that, those, those signals from my, from my network. In the course of your research, can you think of an example, or did you come across an example, where this creative combination, or perhaps not creative combination of voices or minds, had actually slowed down 
or made a difficulty rather than the benevolent effects you're mostly seeing? In other words, did you see it work the other way? Can you think of an example where it worked the other way? Because there was a collaboration, it, it actually slowed it down. Interesting. Um, no, there are no examples in the course of human history of that ever happening. Uh, <laughs> next question. Um, um, no one has ever asked me that. Um, I don't... You know, the, the, the limitations that I see, um, you know, part of, the, part of the concept here is that because ideas are really kind of works of bricolage where you're borrowing ideas and, and tools and technologies that are out there, um, the, one of the things that comes out of that theory um, is, is that there are, there are certain ideas that are really heavily restricted by the, the context of their time. So it's not so much the actual collaboration, but kind of the, the thoughts available in, in other minds or the technologies and tools available in other minds. It's actually quite amazing how few examples there are in history of truly, truly ahead of their time ideas. People are just kind of amazingly, uh, you know, when it becomes time to invent railroads, people start inventing railroads, but people don't try and invent railroads with almost no exceptions, you know, 100 years before or 200 years before. And so there's amazing restriction in slowing down when you, when, when you have one of those rare instances where an idea has leapt ahead of its kind of intellectual context um, or the paradigm of research. Or the, that, that, uh, the classic example of this is Babbage and uh, inventing the programmable computer in 1835 and 1840 with the analytical engine. Um, you know, he was trying to build a, um, you know, a digital age computer with steam power basically, um, and with industrial parts. And he, you know, it just couldn't be done. And in fact, it, it failed so badly because that the ideas themselves, while well, he had actually kind of envisioned all the kind of major kind of core components of a computer, um, th those ideas actually died out and had to be independently rediscovered 70 years later when people actually had vacuum tubes so they could start building real computers that actually worked. Um, and so part of the trick is to make sure that you are working within the kind of the boundaries of possibility, in, both in terms of the people you're working with and the tools you're working with. And one of the reasons why Berners-Lee was able to invent the web, uh, there was kind of a rival idea to the web, for the web, which was this idea of, of Ted Nelson's, um, which was much more grandiose in its dream of a kind of global hypertext system. And it had wonderful things like, you know, kind of some intellectual property built into it and some payment mechanisms built into it, had two-way linking, and all these very ambitious things, but it required that you build the whole thing from scratch, from start, you know? And it was just too ambitious to actually make, whereas Berners-Lee was like, okay, I'm gonna build on top of the existing internet platform, I'm gonna borrow from the SGML standard here, I'm gonna modify that, I'm not gonna get it all done, but I'll get enough of it done and work within the space of possibility, and that was the one that actually got built and changed the world. Not quite the answer to your question, but I will find the case that <laughs> somewhere it must be there. Do you know of one? I'm sorry, this is not quite the sense in which I asked the question, but I was just trying to think back to 19th century examples of very big ideas where I wasn't aware of a collective context. Darwin was actually the person that came to my mind. I, I'm not aware of crowdsourcing in Darwin's ideas, but this being the LSE, there's almost certainly a Darwin expert in the room yeah. who's going to contradict me any moment. <laughs> but I just, I, you know, as far as I know, he worked mostly on his own, and I'm just... I'm just setting it against your examples. I'm not driving. Uh, I'm not arguing with your thesis at all. I'm, yeah. 
I, I just think it's interesting to look at where there are limitations or variations. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, in some sense, Darwin did work alone, but he also was was building. You you can really see the clear kind of building blocks that enabled him to kind of think the thought. I mean, Lyell and and the deep time of geology that was so important to him. Um, and that some of his early insights that he kind of borrowed from those fields ended up being very useful in enabling him to solve this problem in the way that he, that, that he was able to do. Next question. So we go. Couple here. Hi, just wondering, drawing on your uh, kind of previous experience as an entrepreneur right. and some of the, the kind of examples of slow hunches and kind of the capital needs of some of these kind of slow hunches to actually become commercial entities. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on kind of the lessons that the venture capital industry could kind of learn from some of your research to kind of reverse their recent fortunes? Yeah, great, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the last startup I did outside in, which is, which is now doing quite well, um, you know, came out of exactly this kind of collision. I was writing Ghost Map. I was writing about 19th century Victorian London and the neighborhoods and the maps of, of that. And at the same time, I was kind of procrastinating. <laughs> this is a lot of theme about procrastination tonight. Um, by reading local bloggers in my neighborhood in Brooklyn who were writing about kind of brownstone Brooklyn in this kind of new way. And then Google had just released its maps API so you can develop on it. And the idea for Outside In, which is about hyperlocal news and a kind of platform for kind of writing people writing about their neighborhoods, came from the intersection of Victorian cholera Google Maps API and local bloggers. And it was because I was kind of interested in these seemingly different things that you know, that idea kind of w was there. But the truth is we spent a very long time, we spent two or three years really trying to figure out what the real kind of plan was. I mean, there's a classic definition of a startup is a search algorithm for a business model, right? Um, and, and, and part of what you need to be able to do, I think, is to, you know, is to obviously give your companies, when they're in that early stage, the opportunity to explore um, and to not be so set on the, the kind of the core product at the beginning. Um, the, there's the, the great thing about this time, if, you're, if, if, the, if the VC is investing in kind of technology companies, um, particularly in web-based companies or mobile-based companies, the thing that makes that so much more financially reasonable now is that it takes so much less money to get, to get through that alpha, beta kind of phase. Um, and so you can go through, you can spend you know, less than $2 million in two years, um, which in a traditional venture sense is a very small amount of money, um, working and experimenting. And you can just work with a team of five people and spend even less than that um, and build products that can, can absolutely become huge, you know, blow out. And so the kind of conventional venture idea of like, we need to be investing in something where they need $10 million up front because if we don't get $10 million to work, our fund won't be able to kind of return. That, that has to change. And I think a number of investors are realizing that they, they have to be able to invest like angels, invest small little seed amounts. And, and that's great because they can make these small bets and if they don't pan out, if it turns out to be not that good an idea or the exploration process doesn't work out, they've only lost $500,000. And if it does work out, they're going to need $10 million because the idea is blowing up. Look how much Twitter has, has needed um, you know, to raise, even though it started as an idea basically where three or four people were working on it. Um, so it's that kind of invest in a lot of things with seed level, angel level kind of money, um, but be ready with kind of deep pockets when, when one of those ideas breaks out. Ooh. 
Yeah, kind of along those lines. I was wondering uh, what other examples or structures of, of linking the private for-profit sector with the open source sector you've seen or come across or, or you've come up with yourself. Because in my undergraduate university, they put a whole bunch of, not a whole bunch of, like three or four angel and venture capitalists on the hard scientists uh, department board and their patents and their research all went kind of through the roof over the next bunch of years. Hmm. So if different ideas along those lines are or things like that. You know what, where I'm really interested um, in slightly, slightly different space, but I think connected to this, is, is the, the possibilities this opens up for the public sector of <coughs> government agencies. Um, and there have been a number of really interesting experiments here and in, in the US um, where, you, where you take something like a big government bureaucracy, which is generally, historically, very bad at innovating. And to use a, a phrase of Tim O'Reilly's, you, you see the government as a kind of software platform. And that it has all this information, it has all these services, and all, all these things that it does, and it does quite well, but it does a terrible job of kind of sharing and marketing and getting word out about it and stuff like that. And on the outside of government, you have all these very smart people who have ideas about how to make government more useful and relevant to people's lives and to explain what it does and to share the information that it's sitting on and all this kind of stuff. And so if you, if you open up government so that outside kind of developers and entrepreneurs can build on top of that data in, in useful ways. Um, you can get a lot of innovation that is building on kind of the internal ideas of the government, but the, the kind of new ideas are coming from outside. So the classic example of this in, in DC, my hometown, uh, which I can say is maybe the least innovative local government in the world, uh, it certainly was when I was growing up, they did this uh, kind of competition a few years ago that they originally called Hacking the District, but they decided that was not a very good name for it at all. Um, and, the, and the premise was that they were sitting on all this information, so they released it. Um, they created kind of an open API that people could kind of develop for. And they, they said, we're going to create a competition. And we're going to give $10,000 to the best app that somebody creates, either a web app or an iPhone app or an Android app. And it just has to use kind of our civic data in some interesting way that makes it useful for people living in the District of Columbia. And we'll give $10,000 to the winner and $5,000 to the runner-up. And they announce the competition. And in two months, they've got 47 apps. Um, they do basically, they spend almost no other money promoting this thing. By entering the competition, you have to agree to release your app freely into the world so that anybody can use it. So they have 47 working apps that every citizen of the District of Columbia can use. It ranges from very serious apps that show where your tax dollars are being going to put to work to an app called Stumble Safely, which is a very useful app if you get too drunk in a bar in D.C. and you can't drive home. It will map the safest, based on crime reports, pedestrian route back to your house. <laughs> exactly the kind of thing that is very useful that city governments traditionally have not produced in the past, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so they estimated if they had done this through the normal kind of government channels of we are going to create an initiative to create apps for the you know, it would have taken them $2 million, cost them $2 million and taken two years and they would have gotten five apps, right? But because they said, hey, go ahead, go crazy, because people, you know, this is a great space where people have all these ideas, they have spare time, they have hobbies, they have all this expertise, and they will sometimes just do things for the love of it, but if it involves their society, if it involves their town, they will really care, and they're really invested in it. They have this kind of emotional and kind of personal stake in making this information more available. And so I, I think that's a really interesting model. In fact, the guy who 
did it, the CTO of, of, the, of the District of Columbia, when they did it the next year, he wasn't around because he's now the Chief Information Officer of the United States of America um, in the Obama administration. So, and, they're, and on a federal level, they've been doing a lot of things like that. Um, and I don't even want to talk about American politics right now, but uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to look at my phone, but uh, uh, it's a very sorry, sorry story over there. But anyway, so that, I think that's a pretty interesting model as well. Uh, we probably have time for about one more question. Uh, there was a woman over here. Yeah. I wanted to know how good ideas evolve, right? So you start with a good idea, and then from the point when it's an idea to when it's realized, uh, I guess in, the, in, in your research, did you see a lot of evolution from it being a good idea to, I guess, sort of how it evolved? A lot of changes from the or original idea to where yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it, that's part of the, the, the kind of core notion of, this, of the slow hunch that, it, that I alluded to, that, that you see again and again these things where the ideas start as, they're promising, but you really don't know why they're all that promising. You just have this kind of itch, in a sense. There's something interesting about this problem that you're drawn towards. I mean, I'll bring back to it, Tim Berners-Lee. Um, started working on the project that would become the web in the early 1980s as just a side project at, at the Swiss physics lab that he was working at, just to organize the local data of the lab. There were a lot of people, a lot of projects going around, and so he created this little software program just, just as a hobby at work. And then he kind of messed around with it. He gave it a, called it Inquire. Then he did a version called Tangle. And then it slowly started to build in his kind of scope for it, his ambition for it, and then he finally did a version called the web where he brought over some of these existing other standards and, and kind of widened it. And it wasn't until then that he even told his bosses about it, which I love. You know, he's kind of like, oh, by the way, uh, I may have invented a new medium. Uh, can, this, can this be my job now? You know? Um, and so, and one of the principles actually, which I should mention that particularly in, in this context is, you know, organizationally, how do you carve out the space for your employees to have these kinds of hunches. It's very hard to go to your boss and say, I have a good idea, I'm not sure what it is, I think it will be relevant to our business circuit 2017, if that's all right, you know, can I work on it, you know? But there are, there are these interesting techniques, I'm sure people have talked about them here and studied them, things like innovation time off that Google does, where you're given kind of 20% of your time to work basically on whatever you want, to work on your hobbies. Um, they just have to be relevant vaguely to the corporate mission, but with Google, the corporate mission is organizing all the world's information, so pretty much anything, you know. I'm organizing my Lego collection. Uh, that's, um, but, but they actually get something like 50% of their kind of shipping, you know, features and, and products, new innovations, out of the 20% time of their employees, because it is, in a sense, this kind of slow hunch cultivating process that, that's there that allows these ideas to start with some interesting little inkling of something and really then blossom over time into something much bigger. Okay. Um, I think that's all the time we have for tonight. Uh, but Stephen will be sending his book outside. Um, Stephen, I wonder if you would indulge me in, in a question of my own. Yes. Could you leave us with one tip uh, for us as individuals in terms of how to come up with better ideas? Um, yeah, well, I think that one, w w there's a very simple thing, actually, um, which is important, which is, uh, and I have a bunch of kind of techniques that I've used over the years, which I tried not to write about too much in the book, because it's a book about great ideas, and you don't want to be like, and another technique that I use for my great ideas. <laughs> Nobody wants to be that guy, but since you've asked. Um, uh, uh, so, so one of the things that, that, that I do, it's, it's, it sounds very obvious, but I, I have a single document that I use 
where I, where I have now been keeping it for six years, where I write down every little hunch, and it's like, this is a book idea, this is an article idea, a speech idea, a startup idea, a, someone I should call idea. And I keep them all in one place. I don't try and classify it. I don't try and put it into folders because the danger of putting something into a separate folder or a separate little silo is it gets lost or it gets orphaned there. Um, and I've been keeping that one. Originally it was a Word document. Now it's a Google Doc, so I can get to it pretty much from anywhere now. Um, and, but here's the key thing. I go back and I reread that whole document every kind of three months. And it's, one of the things that's rewarding about it is that you see these little kind of punches. You're like, hey, and a whole book came out of that. You know, that, that was a good one. But more often than not, you find these kind of orphaned ideas that you thought this little fragment of something you thought in 2006, which made no sense in 2006, but that actually in 2010, because of someone you've met or because of some new technology or some new partnership you have or just your own development, turns out to be really interesting in 2010. And so it's in, in a sense what that enables you to do is to kind of network with your own ideas, right? Your own kind of past ideas. Because it's amazing, particularly with things that are kind of fragments, it's amazing how much you forget. You will just forget everything if you don't write it down and then revisit it. Um, so just like you're doing, write it down right there and then go back <laughs> and revisit it. Um, so that's, that's something that has really that has worked for me. That's great. Thank you so much. Well, it's Thank been a real all. pleasure.